Yeah. One of the things I was going to point out, you covered a lot of ground right there. First of all, for, for those that don't know, Melchizedek is actually a book that was found in the Nag Hammadi Desert, right? Isn't that correct? One of the codexes? Yes, that's right. Yeah. And so anyway, you can go and, and study that and, and you know, I'm not going to get too far into that. One of the things, though, the Jewish view of, of Satan and Job in the book of Job, okay, the Jewish view of that, if I'm not, if I'm not, correct me if I'm wrong, but it, it was like Satan was not really like Shaitan that we know is like Shaitan is really bad. He's a bad spirit. As like in Islam, he's bad. And in the, and in the, the Bible, he's bad. But in the book of Job, he's almost like he's a, he's a, uh, like an agent. Like, you know, God, he works with, almost like God goes to him and says, hey, check out this guy. He won't do anything. And like, he's, he just does, he'll, he'll, he'll follow me no matter what. And then he well, allows him to, oh, go ahead, go ahead. Well, yeah, in my book, Escaping from Eden, I argue that that's one of those stories that we've translated as a God story that is not a God story at all. Uh, it looks like one because that 6th century BCE edit puts the name of God in at the beginning so that we'll see it as part of the big scheme of things. But uh, a lot of Bible scholars believe that's actually a, an Arabic story that's migrated its way into the Hebrew canon and that what you're actually looking at is what the Bible calls the Sky Council, which is a council of a diversity of entities uh, who seem to have a stakeholding in Project Earth, but it's not a God story. We, we think it is because of how it's been translated. But the word that gets translated as God in the, in the earliest versions of these stories, that one included, uh, is not Yahweh, it's Elohim. And we've translated this word as God, which in actual fact means the powerful ones. It's a plural, masculine form word. It takes plural verbs. It exhibits plural behaviors. And when you get to Job, you are looking at the powerful ones sitting in council and essentially toying with a human life in the way a naughty boy might toy with an ant. That's not a God story. That, that is something else. And I think that is challenging to say to people because we're so used to treating our translations including the 6th century BCE edit, which is a translation, as if that were the Bible itself, as if that were the original story, and it isn't. It's when we get to the original stories that we really get to the truth of things. Yeah, and it's really odd. It's, you know, if you go, okay, so if you go to Job, it says there was a man named Job living in the land of Uz, or Uz, I don't know exactly the, the you know, and it says he worshiped God and was faithful to him. He was a good man, careful not to do anything evil. Um, so it's almost like, you know, they're testing him to see the, hum the, the human nature or the fallibility of human nature. And God, as, as, as is interpreted in Job, doesn't seem like a very nice to, to, to do that. It, was, it doesn't seem like he's very nice. I mean, it seems like it's like, you know, he allows this devil or Satan, whatever, to torment him, to kill everything, to kill his livestock, kill his family, and to to cover him in sores. And ultimately, it's just him and his wife left. And she's like, just why don't you just, you know, curse God and die? And Job is like, he's steadfast. And he says, no, I will not do that. I will not do that. So then she she passes away, and then God lifts him up. And, and then he restores him, like, you know, tenfold, everything is way better. Yeah, after he's one, killed all his family. Yeah, after he's killed all his family. Now, the one thing I took away from that as a, as a child or as a teenager when I really started looking into it was that maybe the fact that, and this is the only way I could, the only kernel of, you know, what I could, I could follow was maybe if you had a wife that was telling you to do that, and maybe she wasn't such a good person in the first place and you shouldn't have been with her. That's what I was thinking. Like, maybe that's the only way. Maybe God was doing him a favor by getting rid of those people who weren't really God-fearing like him and then restoring him and giving him a godly wife. That was the only way I could, I could even, like, you know, kind of come to terms with it. And I thought, well, you know, at the end of the day, you're just going like, this is crazy, though. I mean, you just go... I have a hard oh, time yeah. just wrapping my mind around that. And then the blood sacrifice, the blood sacrifice, the blood sacrifice. 
And, and, and I argued with somebody one day, um, and this is kind of moving to another, you know, but I mean, they, they were telling me, uh, well, there's no real proof of any of these things one way or the other. There's no proof of any of these things. And I, and I know that in Genesis, uh, of course, very famous passage in Genesis and, you know, mighty, uh, the, the, where they talk about the, uh, the Nephilim, um, the, the, and, and how they had the, 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 the sons of God. Yep. Yeah. With the dot, with the, you want to talk about that? Do you want to get into that for a minute? Sure. Well, Genesis six, when I, when I tell people that I, I, my books are about the Bible and they're also about paleo contact. If the person is a Bible reader, they'll think, Oh, maybe he's talking about Genesis six because that is the first moment that most Bible readers will become aware where there are other entities in the story that we're not quite sure what they are because you get to Genesis 6 and the Bene Elohim turn up to hybridize with human women. And we're not told what they are. We know that they are similar enough that they're compatible with human women. They can have offspring, but they're different enough that the kids don't stop growing. They become giants. That's how the story goes. They become the men of renown. Josephus, the Jewish historian, said the men of renown, that's what the Greeks called the Titans. And so he accepted there was this story all around the world of an ancient hybridization that was very controversial. So who are the Bene Elohim? Well, Elohim is the powerful ones. Bene means the sons of, the sons of the powerful ones. But it could mean that in the same way we use the phrase when we talk about sons and daughters of the revolution, it's ones in the character of, ones like the powerful ones. The way this story unfolds, it's the second wave of powerful ones turning up on planet Earth to intersect with human history. Now, curiously, we're back to Nag Hammadi again, because when we dug up the um, the Book of Enoch, not that it needed digging up, because the, East, the uh, Ethiopian Orthodox Church had always included it within the canon of the Old Testament, we started reading the Book of Enoch and realized this is the long version of Genesis 6. This is the book the writer of Genesis 6 assumes we've all read, read yeah. when he quickly summarizes what happened there. This is the book the writer of Jude in the New Testament assumes we've all read, because it's a story of these other entities. It has names for them, but it doesn't say what they are. The story makes clear that they are biological entities that can have sex with human beings and produce hybrids. So that's the Genesis 6 moment. And it's really interesting that that is a story that you can find anywhere around the world if you listen to the ancestral narratives. But I want to go back to what you were saying before about trying to make sense of Job and what God appears to be doing in Job, because that's quite a good example of the problems that were thrown up in the 6th century BCE when stories that were not God's stories were presented as if they were God's stories, because now you've got God doing awful things, whereas in the original, it was someone else doing awful things, and it's been translated as God. A really fascinating example of that, a little bit more complex, but it really illustrates the point, is the moment when Abraham, who's been granted this son, he and his wife have this close encounter with three powerful ones in their old age, and the result is she has a baby. So this is the baby of promise that is through Isaac, that all the peoples of God are going to be descended. And then comes the order, I want you to kill him. Now, this is typical of uh, a lot of ancient patterns of, one could say religion, but it's really control. Because if you can get a human being to sacrifice their child, you have total power over it. You can get a human being to sacrifice their first and only child, you have absolute power over it. So it's an absolute power display when you get humans to do this. And if you find a society that has human sacrifice like this, then you can bet your bottom dollar that's a feudal order where people live in absolute misery. Well, that's what the world was like at the time. And now God, in the current version of the story, is asking Abraham to repeat the very worst of pagan behavior. What sense does that make? And so the way the story rolls, Abraham says, oh, 
all right then. And he uh, arranges everything to kill his son and present him as a burnt offering. And then at the last minute, uh, a messenger from Yahweh shouts and says, stop, don't kill the boy. We're going to provide something else. Now, the way it's translated at the moment, God tells Abraham to kill the boy, and God tells him, no, stop, only joking. And we're supposed to produce a positive moral from that story. Well, I've heard preachers try to do that for more than 30 years, and it's not very easy to do. Yeah, me too. Because a God who would do that to someone is a monster. And the reason it comes out that way, it's a translation issue. You go to the root words, it's the Elohim who tell Abraham to sacrifice Isaac. It's a messenger from Yahweh who says, stop, we'll give them something else. And you can see the work the editor did, because the editors come along in, in the 6th century BCE and they say, we can't have this, there are too many gods in this story. This, this sounds like polytheism. Well, it's not. It's actually a recollection of a time when humans were governed over by another species that was on planet Earth. So they think, how do we get rid of these other beings? And you can see exactly what they do. They add um, a word. It comes out as two words in English. Right at the end, the God character in the current translation says, well, now I know that you fear the Elohim because you did not withhold your son from me. Those are the two words added, from me, so that it equates Yahweh with Elohim. The, 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 the great success of that is, hey, presto, now we don't have too many gods in the story, but the god we end up with by equating Elohim with Yahweh is a monster. You can't question him. If he tells you to kill your children, you kill them. No questions asked. And that vision of God you could draw a straight line from that to all the abuses that have been done in the name of God through history, whether we're talking about invasions, genocides, or the kind of abuse that we've now had royal commissions to uncover, where you cannot question people who speak for God, even if they're doing the most appalling things. It all starts with this morally inscrutable God that you get to when you make that equation. Do the translation work, the Elohim tell him to do the awful thing, the messenger of Yahweh comes in with the rescue. And that's the original shape of that story. And we begin to realize God is a whole lot better than we thought he was when we start disentangling him from some of these awful things that the Elohim did in our deep past. One of the things, too, about Genesis 6, in relation to where it says the mighty men, men of renown, I made a point in a group that I'm in, okay, on, on Facebook. I actually, I actually said that, uh, and it started a big old whatever. And I said that <laughs> these, these actually, these beings actually existed, and that what we know of as uh, Hercules and Thor, that's who they were. And somebody was like, "What are you talking about? That's ridiculous!" Blah blah blah. So I got attacked. But I pointed to the to the to the fact that there was a guy who was an archaeologist named Heinrich Schliemann. Um, and Heinrich yes. Schliemann in 1873, he actually uncovered several layers of what was Troy. Now that was always considered to be a uh, a story fictitious. that was yeah fictitious yeah. that was told in the in the Iliad, um, and it was told that that uh, and then of course later the Aeneid, which is the the Aeneas, of course the the Romans they they believed that they could trace their lineage back to the Trojans because of Aeneas. Um, but that was written way like later on, and that was just a fictitious writing that kind of gave them a, a, a history of their beginning, when in reality they were just uh, slaves to the Etruscans for, for centuries. Um, yes. And then they rose up and took killed them and said, no, nah, we're going to rewrite the history. You know what? We came from Troy. Um, well, the reason that they all talked about Troy was because it really happened. Now, there were people in this group <laughs> in this group. And I'm not going to say the group, but I'm, but I'm not going to down them or anything. But they, they, they even told me that I was full of it because I said the Trojan War was real. And they were like, that's a book that was written, you know, as a fictitious. And I was like, even in the, in the year, of, I think it was like two or three years ago, 2018, whatever it was, they were still arguing, <laughs> arguing that Troy didn't happen. Very, very clearly, Heinrich Schliemann found it. I mean, he, yeah. 
and and he found what he because he was looking for Priam's treasure. I believe is why he was he was really looking for gold. And then and then he was kind of like, oh, I actually did find it because then it became a quest because nobody believed that it was there. And of course, he found in Asia Minor, which is modern day Turkey. Um, and you're going like, this is this really happened? You know, like this is an actual. So- this is really interesting, Josh. I mean, on the one hand, I can understand people getting upset with you if you question a doctrine that they've been taught and has been taught for centuries in church. But why were people getting upset with you for saying that this was actually a, um, an historical place, an historical account? Why was it so important to people that get so upset? Well, they would. I, th- I think what it was is because I was making a connection to the Nephilim and the like you were saying, the Elohim and how that, that there were 200 watchers. And I, I started to explain that, that I believe that this was real, the, the mighty men, men of renown, because the, in the Iliad, if anybody's read it, it's full of the gods. I mean, the gods are fighting side by side with man. And the yeah. Trojans were fighting against the, uh, the, the, uh, the Greek League, basically. Well, I guess it wouldn't be the Greek League. The Greek League didn't come into play until Alexander. Alexander tried to make it, make it into like, hey, we're all in this together. We're going to go invade Persia, which really was mostly just Macedonians. And some of the Greeks unwillingly went along because they were forced to. But, so it wouldn't be the Greek League. But there was the Spartans and then some of their allies from the different Argosians and different types of, of – uh, Corinthians and, and Thebans, whatever, they all went along and said, okay, we'll help you fight. And I think it was more about plunder and treasure. And Achilles was a central character. Um, and I think that was a big, that's, that's a linchpin there because Achilles was a central character in, in the downfall of Troy. He was a demigod. And the only spot that he could be killed or hurt was when he, by his, his uh, ankle, which we know is the Achilles tendon. You see it in football and baseball all the time. Guys mess up their Achilles tendon and they're screwed. They can't even walk. So his mother dipped him in the River Styx, I believe. Um, and yes, then that's pu- right. Pulled him out. And then, of course, he was invulnerable except for where she was holding him because she didn't dip him all the way in. I don't know why the story's that way. Maybe she wanted to get her fingers wet or whatever. But she dipped, you know, so she made that mistake. So you have Achilles, who's a demigod who did all this damage to the Trojans. And if you look at the, at, at the battle, it was heavily stacked in the favor of the Trojans because they had the walls and the Greeks were the aggressors and a lot of the gods were on the side of the Trojans, which I think is another reason why the Romans were like, well, mo- most of the gods seem to have been on, you know, but even though they lost, it seems like they were kind of favoring the Trojans. So, um, you know, we're going we're gonna to say that that's who we are. You know that's 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 our and, yeah. and Aeneas escaped, yeah, so he of course. became yeah. So of even, course, because they're appealing to something that was understood and believed, so it gave them instant kudos. If no one else had heard of the Trojans or thought it was just a story, it'd be a joke to say we descended from them. Yeah, you know, it'd be like just saying uh, saying I'm descended from Paddington Bear or something like that. <laughs> it would be a joke. There had to be an understanding. There had to be a common frame of reference for that to be a meaningful thing to say and the the presence of um what the greeks called titans throughout the bible i mean there are plenty named where we're told the name of the people group and specifically how big they were uh so it you know if if you take that seriously then you're saying well they were in the real world and if they're in the real world you'd expect other cultures to talk about them and they do so we've got um the Anakim, the descendants of Anak in the Bible, and then you've got Anak in uh, Islam. You've got the Anaktorians, if you go into the Greek world, and these names keep recurring, very similar sounding around the world, and they're talking about huge people who were the result of hybridization. I remembered just recently when I was researching for the Scars of Eden, the whole of Europe uh, is named after an abductee who was made to produce three hybrid children. Europa. One of them was Mino. That's right, Europa mm-hmm. was abducted, had three hybrid children, one of them Minos, the progenitor of the Minoan people. And if you go to school in Greece, this is taught as history. This is the beginning of European history, and there's an acknowledgement there were these huge people who used to live here and run things. And I think someone who is um, a believer, uh, a Bible reader, should be really excited when they hear that because it corroborates some of the Bible's claims about 
the human and human-like population on planet Earth being more interesting and more diverse than perhaps you and I learned at school. Well, pro- certainly you probably learned at school. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> and the Minoans, they, they were the predecessors to the Greeks. They, they were yeah, the, that's right. what the Etruscans yeah. were to the Romans. They were to the, to the Greeks. And they, and were, they, yeah, right. they had the power. Crete actually was the power. It's funny when you exactly. – we, we have a derogatory term called Cretan. Oh, you're a Cretan. Well, the the Greeks actually hated the Cretans because the Cretans had – they held sway over that entire region. The they, Athen- were a, yeah. they were the major maritime force. Maritime and they power. were very – not only were they tall, they were very advanced. They mm-hmm. had beautiful stone-built cities with sanitation and uh, airflow management. I mean, they were a really advanced people group. Yeah, and they had a sacrifice where – which a lot of people don't realize this, but the uh, the bull they they worshipped it, and it was like um, a symbol of their uh, power prowess, and you know it was on their shields, um, and and it and it and it led over into you know the the, the history of the the Greeks. They greatly influenced the, the Greek mainland. Now, and there's a there's a marked difference between the Greeks and the Romans in the in the way that the Romans were not big seagoing people. They were not. They they were land based for the most part, except when they went to Carthage and sacked it. Um, but but it was the Greeks were very very uh, they were sailors and and even the Phoenicians are sort of a hybrid of Greek colonization. Uh, the Lebanese people today, I mean, you know, they were kind of like the descendants of of, of a Greek colonization. I think even Archimedes didn't he live he he lived in in, in the Middle East and it wasn't even. Um, but it, that's th- right. And, yeah. and there's another connection because Europa was Phoenician. The Phoenicians, yeah. 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 And, yeah. She was Phoenician. She was a daughter of a, uh, one of the kings from there. And then she produces Minos. So it's no surprise that uh, the Minoans would be a seafaring people with that heritage. Yeah. And the, uh, the, the of course, the Cretan bull, the labyrinth. I don't know if anybody knows the Minotaur. Um, I think his name was Targamir. Targamir the Minotaur, and he was he was the half bull, half man, who I believe really existed. I believe he was a, a Nephilim, and I said that too, and I got laughed at and told, "Well, you come up with all kinds of crazy stuff. Why are you getting all this stuff?" Right? And I'm like, "Because I'm connecting dots. You know, it's not. Yeah, yeah. They, and people yeah. don't want to hear it because it's it, it, it turns well, your worldview on its ear." I I applaud you for saying that, uh, Josh. I really do because. You can go to Greece, you can go to Egypt, um, you can go to Mesoamerica, and you will hear stories about hybrid creatures that uh, are not just, you know, a very tall human being, but are mixed creatures where there's been some kind of genetic engineering we couldn't even imagine. Now, when you ask the um, tour guides or the scientists, what is that? It's worth really putting that um, answer uh, under the spotlight because very often we get non-answers to why they portrayed like that. Oh, well, that's just a way of symbolizing power. Why is that? <laughs> why does that symbolize power? Because it's a non-answer until you can answer the why. And if that can't be answered, then what if – they are carving into the walls what they saw to tell the story of what they saw. What if you consider that possibility, especially since it occurs, reoccurs in cultures all around the world? We might think it's ridiculous, the idea of a mixed creature, because we can't make one. Mm-hmm. Or can uh, we? So <laughs> well, <laughs> or can we? True. <laughs> That's but not me and you, I but yeah, certain governments. Because we in public can't make one, it becomes part of our worldview that it cannot be done, therefore was never done. Therefore, we don't believe what we're seeing when we see the carvings, and we come up with another story. And I just encourage people to be really, really discerning when you ask for an explanation of this picture in front of you. You know, if you go to the uh, Museum of Antiquities in Guatemala and go to the section that's devoted to people wearing um, space helmets with Bluetooths. Oh, yeah. Ask the guide, what is that? And then work out, 
Does that sound credible? If somebody says, oh, well, look, uh, when you wanted to show that someone was really clever and powerful, you draw them with something that looks like a space helmet and a Bluetooth. That's the answer. Oh, great. Why? <laughs> you know, why thousands of years ago would, would you they need that? choose those symbols to mean that they're very clever? Until that why is answered, I would say believe what you're seeing with your own eyes. I think one of the one of the things that okay, like the Sumerian tablets. When you look at the Sumerian tablets, and of course, a lot of people say, well, they haven't been translated correctly, and there's all these arguments and this and that. But there are these pictures that are carved into these tablets where it looks like there's a giant, you know, and there's like this little person. Yeah. And then they're they're holding what looks like a like a like a I I, I want to say it looks like an iPad. <laughs> I'm not I mean it does. <laughs> and you're going like what is that? Like why 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 is this guy holding an iPad? And why does this what looks like an adult so tiny? And I and I actually explained that to someone. One of my listeners was talking to me, and we got this long discussion. And I said I honestly believe that they created a smaller. Because wouldn't you rather rule over a, a race of Smurfs, you know, than actually some of your own size? What if these people rebel? I mean, what if they decide, you know yeah. what, we don't want to listen to you. We, we don't want to do this. And so if that happens, okay, they're only like three feet tall, dude. Like how hard is this going to be for us to beat them? Okay. We have technology. They're ignorant. They're running around with spears. Okay. Even if we gave them a godlike mind, you know, they're still, they're still tiny, dude. I mean, like how can you lose? So that that to me would be just it would make sense. It's just it's just a, a logical thing. They're like, well, because she asked the question, she was like, if they if these were the gods and they created us in their image, okay, she's like, why yeah. didn't they make us like them, just like them? And then we went into the whole DNA strands and how many they you know supposedly they have you know all this other abilities and things like that. And I said, you wouldn't make if it was me, me personally, Josh Turner, and I had this power to create life. Like to in a test tube to to grow it and turn it into. I'm not going to make a bunch of copies of me because I'm not. I'm not. This isn't a braggart thing or whatever. But I'm a big, strong, quick, powerful person. If you want to have to have, if you had to logically throwing morality out the window, okay, because that's immoral. First of all, to have slaves is immoral. But if you're, but I'm not them. But if I was, okay, hypothetically, I would make a race of smaller me's. Like little me's that I could tell, look, do what I'm going to do, do what I tell you, or you're going to cease to exist because you're tiny and I can squash you. I mean, it just makes sense. You're not going to create a race of giants like yourself that you can't push around, you know? So if if they rebel, then there's a problem. And if you look at the Old Testament, it's over and over again. It's always, it's drilled into your head. Rebellion is as witchcraft. Rebellion, you're rebellion that, you know? And it's like, you're, you're a bad guy. Don't question because if you question, you're straight going straight to the bad place, to the H-E double hockey sticks, you know, and that's, that's, it was just, to me, it was a control mechanism and it, it was in place yep. for so long. And and now you have an audience of people who were terrified to hear all, you know, you were on my show on Tuesday. Okay, folks, we're recording this on a Friday. This is the fifth, I guess the 15th, the 16th for you. Okay. So, and, and that's important because I'm going to tell you why. Between the the time of Tuesday and now, I've gotten a hundred emails and messages, messengers, messages or whatever, uh, telling me, oh, I want to hear what you'll have to say, but I'm kind of scared. You know, and I'm like, what are you afraid of? Okay. These people are literally afraid that if they hear this, that they're going, they're, like, I don't know. They think that they're, you know, kind of a joke here, but like, you're, are, are you going to melt like Raiders of the Lost Ark because you looked at the Ark, you know, the Covenant? And you're going to just melt? Oh my God! You know, it's 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 you're hearing the truth. You're hearing what needs to be said, and I think that your books are, are to me are very, 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 very important, very valuable information because I've looked around for a long time for truth, and I've been like, you know. People had said something to me about ancient aliens or whatever. I was like, I've never even seen one episode of that. I've seen one or two, like maybe a couple. I don't know. Um, but but it's not to me. I don't. I don't. I, all my information came from reading. You know, I just read yes. all these things and I and I studied yeah. it and I took different texts. And me and you talked uh, for a good while at one night, Paul, before we 
did the first uh, set, set together on, on our live stream. And we talked about this and I told you, you know, that I'm, I'm very, um, I have, I'm good with languages. And you said that's very important because you have to be able to translate this because there are books that are, that are, you just cannot get around the translations unless you have some basis and, you know, like you got to have some Latin, you know what I mean? And you got to know some Greek yeah. and you got to be able to decipher these things. Like, okay, on, on, in the Isle of Patmos, John, which is not the same. A lot of people confuse John on the Isle of Patmos in Southeastern Greece. They confuse it. They confuse him with uh, the disciple. That's two different people. Okay. Now, when you take the, the the number 666, which is the number of the Antichrist, I tell people all the time, I'm like, that that is Nero Caesar. And yes. people lose their freaking mind. They're like, no, it's not. It's Gorbachev. It's Obama. It's this person. It's that person. And I'm going like, dude, really? Like, no, it's not. It was Nero Caesar. And then they said, well, well, he was in prison. There were Romans that in prison. Well, you know why? Because the average Roman couldn't even read their own language, which was Latin, much less Greece, Greek. So yes. he wrote it in ancient Greek text. And, and I figured that out on my own. Nobody taught me that. I, I just go, if you, I thought about it to myself. If I was imprisoned, you know, and I needed to get a manuscript out, okay, there's Roman guards. I'm going to write something that they're totally ignorant of. I'm not even going to yes. take a chance that they're going to be ignorant of Latin because they might know a few words, you know? Yeah. I mean, they have some of the, the words tattooed on their, you know, Roma Vita, you know, on their arms. So they might know some Latin. So let's write it in Greek, right? Because yeah. I can pass this off. They're going to look at it and go, what is this? This Greek, exactly. whatever. They had very little respect for that culture. Let's so. not mention the name Nero. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, Even and, though that's who we're talking about. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. And and so he it was a contemporary of his. And of course you had when Rome burned to the ground, which he did, so he could make room for his palace, okay, he he made it a law that you had to have the seal on the hand or the forehead. Um, and you had to have the seal of the Roman emperor or the six six six. Now, but I tell people though, and this is my personal belief. I believe that it happens over and over again because everything's cyclical. So I believe when Jesus says it will be minty antichrist, I believe that it happens over and over again because people latch on to that who are bad, they gravitate toward that. And people who are good look out for that. Absolutely. So, Absolutely. Yeah. And there are patterns. Patterns. Yeah. Uh, and it goes over repeat. and over again. Repeating. Repeating and patterns. Yes. Yes. Yeah. So if, if he's accurately talking about the powers of empire in his day, it will have a perpetual relevance because the powers of empire are always trying to do the same thing mm -hmm. and operate in the same energy, so on and so forth. So that's that's the power of that document. Yeah, and and it was very it was, you know, and so people whenever I got in trouble, okay, in, in the in church, and this is one of the reasons why I don't subscribe to the Christian church um, like I once did. Um, I do believe in Christ. I do have faith and I do read and I do, I do prayer every day. I mean, it's, 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 I don't even step foot out of my bed without praying. But yeah. one of the things I, I always, I, I pray to God that Jesus taught us to follow because I believe that he's the one true God. And I believe that yes. when Jesus was gone for years and years, he was already enlightened and he knew he had enlightenment, but I think he found it in the East. And that's my belief. I believe that he traveled all over and then he returns and there's this long period where he's gone and we don't know where yes. he was or what he was I, doing. I agree with you there. I think there are lots of clues in the Gospels in particular and in the writings of Paul that Jesus and those who wrote for him had a working knowledge of Eastern thought. Uh, and when you think that um, Plato, who was writing oh, yeah. four and a half centuries before Jesus and his followers, he had a working knowledge of Eastern thought. It was part of how he had synthesized his view of everything and produced his incredible books. Well, at the beginning of Christianity, the early church fathers regarded Paul as almost as good as Plato. That was, and they really felt they were paying Paul a compliment when they said that. Paul knew Plato like the back of his hand. And a lot of very famous quotes from Paul are actually quotes from Plato, which he then just finessed a little bit to give it a slightly different meaning. And so is it too hard to believe that Jesus was as clever as Paul, that Jesus was as clever as Plato, and in a period of history as internationalized as that, it would not have been difficult for Jesus 
who was an exceptionally conscious, intelligent person, to go to a library and to get a working knowledge of what's international thought at the moment. We know that he, the possibility is there. He could have traveled to the East. The, you know, the Silk Road, very established. He could have gone with Uncle Joseph on the trade routes as far as India and heard all kinds of wisdom and teaching and input along the way and then come home thinking, I have some fresh language to bring that is different to what I've received from the Jewish tradition and that opens the picture up a bit. I think that's not hard to see and there are some clues in the language of his sayings to hint that he was actually quite familiar with some of the sutras before he came forth with some of his deeds and sayings that he's now very well known for. Yeah, and, and I think because you in <clears throat> Plato, if I correct me if I'm wrong here, Socrates, okay, then Plato, then Aristotle. That's correct, right? That's uh, right. It's it's difficult to get a piece of paper between Socrates and Plato because uh, Plato writes for Socrates, mm-hmm. even though he's got quite a different style. Um, and it's not easy to tell sometimes where we're getting Socrates via Plato or mm-hmm. Plato via Plato. It, it's very, yeah, it, it gets, it gets yeah. convoluted. <laughs> yeah. And, it does. and, but the fact that Pythagoras, of course, the Pythagorean, you know, theorem and all that, uh, these yeah. were all influences. And one of the things that, that oh, yes. interesting about Plato, I and mean, like, he's the one that talked about Atlantis, you know, and everybody's like, well, where is Atlantis? Or where is Atlantis? The, you know, and, and because the world was a different place. And I think that Pl- Plato, if you study Plato, then you can actually learn a lot about the world we live in. I, I think it's weird. I think it's Definitely. weird in a way that Aristotle, um, if you look at Aristotle, that was Alexander's guy. Um, and, and how that is important is that uh, uh, Alexander the Great, he brought the Hellenistic culture to the East. And there was this melding of or a marriage, so, so to speak, of 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 these different. And of course, the Ptolemies, who was the that was uh, Alexander's half brother, they were dynastic and they controlled Egypt for years and years and years and years. And of course, you know, uh, Cleopatra was a uh, a Ptolemy. She was of Greek descent, and they were they kept their bloodline pure by inbreeding, actually. But yes. one thing that that was that was um, I had a history teacher. And I believe, I really believe this, and I think it has a lot to do with what you write. And and, and I was in history, I was in history class, I, was, I think I was 19. And I was in college, and I, you know, I was just a young kid, but I, I'd already read a whole bunch of stuff. And the history teacher says, what is the one most important event that took place in our history that we know of? Okay, because he was like you, he believed the history was way back. But he didn't, he didn't teach that because it wasn't part of the doctrine. But he said, what is the one most important event that took place? Other than if he goes taking out your religion, because everybody raised their hand. And when he said taking out religion, everybody dropped their hand. And there was me and like a girl that was standing <laughs> with our hands up. And he goes, you young man. And I said, the burning of the uh, Library of Alexandria. Oh, yeah. And he oh, goes, wait, wait, wait. And he runs up the steps and he goes to me, embarrasses me. I wasn't good at public speaking at that time. And he tells me to stand up and he goes, say it again. I said, the burning of the Library of Alexandria. And he goes, Yes. He goes, why do you believe that? And I said, because I believe that the knowledge of the ancients was lost there. And yes. over the course of, the, of that semester, I got to be really close to this guy. And, I, and then for years and years until he died, um, we were very good friends. And we talked theology. We talked about all kinds of things. And one of the things that he really believed was that, that all this, a lot of the secrets that were put into that library because Alexander was founded by Alexander the Great. And I believe he was the scientist king. Like he studied entomology. He studied, you know, anthropology. This guy was like everywhere they went, he was taking soil samples. I think he was really trying to learn. He was trying to just, he wanted to see where the edge of the world was, you know? And of course he fought all the way into India. Then his, his men got weary and they were kind of like, okay, this is enough of this. You know, we want to go home. It's been 13 years. We haven't seen our home. So anyways, and he dies mysteriously in Babylon on the way back. Well, it's weird because like all of that knowledge was concentrated into that library. And then of course, uh, come full circle, you know, the time at the, the, during the time of Cleopatra and Julius Caesar, something happened, it got burned. 
and it was a tragedy because we lost the, the knowledge of the ancients that had been uh, just kind of like hoarded there. And I think that there was uh, just, I mean, I th- there were probably documents going back who knows how many thousands of years that got stored there. And, and who knows how many uh, manuscripts. And it can't be o- o- overstated, uh, you know, that how important it was because, you know, all the influences that Plato had, you know, a lot of what he wrote could have been burned in there for all we know. We just had part of it. Oh, you know? yeah, Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, a lot of people <clears throat> will know, for instance, that we've since discovered a number of titles that were in the Library of Alexandria. So we know that it included books that had calculated the mass of the planet mm-hmm. and the circumference of the planet. So that gets lost. So centuries later, people still are thinking the world is flat. But if you've got a book like that in the library, then you can begin to answer questions about someone like Plato, who has a very good go at describing what planet Earth looks like from a distance in space. Now, when you find that in Plato, you think, where in the world has he got this from? You know, is this channeled information? Did he astral travel? How could he possibly know this? Well, when you factor in this great library of literature, that had amassed for the world by his time, you begin to realize he had access to a lot of information that he could build on and reflect on. And now we go back and we see a lot of these writers in isolation because that big library of which they were a part, that world, if I can put it that way, got lost. The context got lost. And for that reason, I think in the past, people might have read Plato describing planet Earth from a distance in space. If they'd read that in the 1700s, they might not have known quite what to make of it. And in fact, we didn't. The way he describes it is how planet Earth really does look from space. And we only knew what it looked like from space in 1968, when Apollo 8 turned around and took a photograph called Earthrise. Up until that point, we thought planet Earth looked like a map that had been wrapped around a globe where you've got blue ocean and then sort of gold land masses, a bit like the planets in Star Trek in the first series of that oh, yeah. in the 1960s. We didn't know it was this swirly marble-like thing, but that's how Plato described it. And um, that caught my eye because I, I don't have that context. I read that in Plato and thought we're on earth did he get that from but there was a lot more knowledge washing around that we give the ancient world credit for you know one of the things that led me to study plato was i I liked military history and a lot of people don't realize how everything is interconnected and one of the things i I always liked the story of xenophon uh general xenophon and the ten thousand mercenaries who they they in a nutshell what happened was they were uh, working for a, uh, a Babylonian king and they ended up, uh, or I'm sorry, a Persian king. And then he was dethroned and then it just, it, and they ended up having to march. Well, he, he was greatly influenced by, by Socrates. Um, and so, you know, Plato was, was influenced by Socrates. And one of the things that Xenophon did was, and from what I read in this one particular book about him, he marched thousands of miles from Persia back to Greece and, and with the bulk of his force intact, which was an amazing feat. But he was, it was yes. because he studied maps that had been laid out by Plato and, and Socrates or well, White. One, we don't know for oh, sure. Well, White, you know. So so when you look at that, you're going like, I go, how did the, in the world did they know? Because Xenophon said, no, I know how to get home. I'm going to get us home. Trust me. And they're like, we're behind enemy lines. Our benefactor is dead. We got the entire Persian army and their vassal states, who was just vast. They were known as the Thousand Nation Empire. And the 300, they say the 100 Nation Empire. No, it was a thousand nations. They said, um, so they, they, they were like, you know, going to be destroyed. But he goes, no, no, there is a map. I know that they're, you know, I know how to get out of here. And it was based on the works of these philosophers. So when you're sitting there and you're and you're uh, going like, man, this is crazy, like the the stuff that the ancients knew, it's really it ca- it, it catches up, you know, and like we, we are literally like right now a people with amnesia, like I oh, really definitely. believe it, yeah. yeah. 
at many, many levels. <laughs> yeah, many, many levels. levels. Yeah. And, and like, and I don't know, and this is the last thing I'm going to throw at you before we got to go, because I love talking to you and we have such good conversations here. But do, do you do you put any stock into the yugas? The, like, the, like we are supposedly in the time of the Kali Yuga with the Hindus. And, and it's really weird that, you know, yeah. in the age of destruction. And, and yes. I know, what do you think of that? And I'll leave you with that. To be honest, the yugas is something I need to invest some time into to really study. The, the closest I've come to that is Plato's understanding of cycles of civilization on Earth. Yeah. Because uh, you mentioned Atlantis before, and a lot of people might not know that it was Plato, this incredibly credible figure, who talked about the Atlantean civilization, and there's a context for it, that he believed that on planet Earth, there is a sequence of civilizations, and that civilization gets uh, knocked back to a virtual zero periodically every few thousand years by planetary cataclysms. And he theorized that these were called, caused by the movement of objects in space. So now we've got language for that. We would, we would talk about asteroids and, and comet impacts and so on and so forth and have an understanding of how that can trigger an ice age or sky fires or tsunamis. So that was the big picture that he had. Atlantis was part of that. He got that information. He told us where he got it from. He got it from the ancient Egyptian priesthood, and they said they had got it from their contact with Atlantis in the deep past. So if you've got a sequence of civilizations, we know about us, and we really don't know about what went before. We don't know really what went before, um, uh, if we think about Karakadag, where they discovered the first Farm, so they believe that is the beginning of the civilization we know. But that's only ten thousand years old. Ten thousand, yeah. So what do we do with the megalithic remains that are ten thousand years old? We don't know anything about the cultures that built those things that are now underwater. And Gobekli Tepe. I mean, it's... Gobekli Tepe was the tail end. That's right mm -hmm. of a population already there before Karakadag in the same country, southeast Turkey. We don't know anything about that culture. The Clovis culture that was on North America before the Younger Dryas Cold period, we don't know anything about that culture. And so that's at a very nuts and bolts level, that there are these ages, there are these civilizations going back far beyond anything that we've got documents for. But there is another aspect to that uh, with the Yugas, which is about the sort of central themes that play out in these different ages. And I think 2021 might be a time when people are reflecting on that because we're thinking, what is what is it that we've got to get right this time around? Yeah. But what are the things that could go wrong? Before What's going wrong right or... now? What are we struggling with here? And I think actually it's in a very experiential way that we begin to tap what I think the story of the Yugas is on about where we can get beyond our individual stories of survival to getting a sense of what are we here to learn as a society and are we learning it? Yeah. Yeah. And the, the last, you know, the, to me, the most telling thing is that the last age was the Dwarpa Yuga and supposedly people lived on average to be about a thousand years old. And now in the Kali Yuga, we only live to be about a hundred years old. And yes. it makes sense because Methuselah, you know, he was almost a thousand. I mean, it was like 900, you know, and, and that, and then the flood ended that age. Like that was the that's end. That's right. And then, of course. And that's you know, the case, not just in um, the Hebrew scriptures. You, you will find that storyline, the limiting of human life in narratives all around the world. Yeah, the Epic of Gilgamesh is one of the most yes, glaringly obvious. Exactly. But Paul, it was it was great having you on. And if, man, come back because we just we left so much meat on the bone. There's so much to talk about. We touched <laughs> on to. a lot of different little you know nuances and subjects, and uh, and so I would love to have you return. And man, I wish you lived here close by. I'd probably be bugging you all the time, and we'd just be uh, that'd be fun. <laughs> <laughs> we'd probably discover the the meaning of life at some point, but. Uh, Anyways, folks, from PRT here, Josh Turner and, and, and my staff and, and Paul Anthony Wallace, your books, 
You want to talk about that? Absolutely. My books, The Scars of Eden and Escaping from Eden. If you go to Amazon, Kindle, Barnes & Noble, High Book Depository, wherever books are sold, you'll find Escaping from Eden and The Scars of Eden. Get hold of those. And if you want to get into conversation with me about what you've read, whether you're full of praise or you want to tell me I'm completely wrong, I love dialoguing with my readers, so feel free to do that. You can find me on the Fifth Kind TV on YouTube or the Paul Wallace channel on YouTube. And you can find me at my website as well, paulanthonywallace.com. So that's Anthony with an H, Wallace, W-A-L-L-I-S, paulanthonywallace.com. And I'd love to get into conversation with you. Yeah, and folks, next time we get Paul on the show, we're going to get more into the serpent's and oh, the, yes. we'll get into the Anunnaki Kings and all the other things that we didn't uncover, that we didn't talk about. I wanted to lead in, and this is the last thing I'm going to say, but I wanted to lead in with the Christianity, with the part of Christ. So people, my listeners, would be understanding where we were coming from. They were not trying to, 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 to dissuade you. We're trying to help you by giving you the correct translations. And that's what Paul does. You know, I'm kind of an armchair, uh, you know, theologian. I'm not official anything. I just read a lot. And I've, you know, but Paul has been, he's dedicated his life to this. Um, and of course, next time you come on, we can talk about some of these things like, like the chimeric uh, creatures. Cause I saw one when I was 15, which is what led me on this journey. Ooh. You know, and I should and, think it would. Yeah. And so next time you come on and we're going to have you on again. I mean, and, and so awesome. It's good talking to you, Paul. And, and from the lounge down under, I hope that uh, you have a good day, mate. <laughs> yeah. Good day to you, Josh. Thanks for having me on your show. I look forward to next time. Yeah. And uh, I'll see you.